Let's go ahead and jump into Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Let me go ahead and read these words for us this morning. The very words of Christ for us, I believe, this morning. I'll read this and it'll come up on the screens as well. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, a town in Judea and Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned home. Now, if you're new with us this morning, or if this is one of your uh, first times here at Veritas, uh, you're coming in at an incredible time. Uh, we are in week two of a series in Advent. Advent just means appearance. It just means arrival of something. And so um, if the word Advent kind of uh, brings something to mind for you that's different than that, try to erase that from your memory. What we are focusing here is the arrival of Jesus. This is the arrival of the Messiah. So during the season of Advent, the church has throughout the past 2,000 years celebrated the first Advent of Jesus, his arrival on the scene, born in humility, born in a stable, right? And what we've also done during this season is longed for the second Advent of Jesus, where he will come in power to make all things new. Advent is a season of joy and hope but it's also a time of longing and expectation. Through the songs that we just sang and the, the prayers you're going to hear prayed and the scripture readings that we want to settle in in this, this season, what we hope these things will do is shape us. We need to be formed by this season of Advent. Our hope is that this Advent season will take full effect, rooting our faith in Jesus as the hope of the entire world and also changing us that we might live in light of his soon return. We might actually hope and see that it's good news for Jesus to come back, for Jesus to return and make all things new. So in this passage today, this text has, text has two distinct sections. First, you've probably picked up on it, right? There's this joyful meeting in verses 39 through 45 of, of Mary and Elizabeth and uh, baby John, and for that matter, a little teeny tiny first trimester, Jesus is in there too, like he makes an appearance, right? And then we have Mary's joyful song following that, verses 46 
through 56. So we'll spend time in each of those sections, but the main point I want us to take away from this passage is this. Uncontainable joy and truth flow out of those who recognize Jesus as Lord. Uncontainable joy and truth flow out of those who recognize Jesus as Lord. We're going to see this happen in this passage by both of these women. Yes, we're going to learn from the example of both of these women and see how joy just naturally flows out of them, how truth naturally comes to their lips because they recognize Jesus as their Lord and the Spirit is doing what the Spirit does, bringing truth, bringing joy, bringing clarity, and making much of Jesus. So maybe you've seen joy just naturally flow out of someone, right? Maybe you knew an Astros fan um, a couple years ago with the whole trash can deal, right? Or maybe you knew a Braves fan this year. I did. I saw joy flow out of that guy, right? Maybe you've been to see a bride and groom on their wedding day. You've seen the face of the, the, the best is when you look at the groom. Don't look at the bride as she's coming through the door. You're going to see her a lot, right? Look at the groom when the bride comes through the door. You want to see unexpressible joy? Goodness. It's absolutely amazing. A mother holding her newborn baby, she can't help but be joyful, right? Someone who's checking something off of their bucket list. Maybe you got something that you've always been longing for. Joy unexpressible happened. Maybe you finally graduated. You finally got that last credit hour and you got to put that cap on so you could throw it right off, right? Maybe it's that unexpressible joy thing. Or maybe you've just seen Ryan eating Bojangles before or, or Fowler's Barbecue. Unexpressible joy, right? And joy is naturally flowing out of that guy. See, Jesus claims to be the bread of life. Jesus claims to be the fountain that never runs dry, the source of true life, and the Bible as a whole claims that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our desires. And no, I didn't misspeak there. All of our desires. He is the central point of all history. He is the point of the entire existence. This is the claim of the Bible about Jesus. So, if Jesus really is this good, and people see him for who he truly is, it changes everything. It changes them. The people in this story who meet Jesus, namely Elizabeth and Mary, have a worldview, though, that have been shaped by the story of the Old Testament. And it's clear by what comes out of their mouths. See, they have a very clear mental category for how to even think about him. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're new to following Jesus, maybe new to the church, or maybe you're not new to the church. You're not new to following Jesus. You're just here because a family member dragged you here, or they promised you to take you out to lunch afterwards, or maybe I don't, you don't know. I don't know. But you, you've heard maybe what we've said about Jesus before. You've heard what we call the gospel before, but it doesn't really sound that like, much like good news to you. See, this is what Advent is inviting us into. It's inviting us to consider the gospel story in light of the entire Bible. Not in just a microcosm in the New Testament of itself, but a fulfillment of what was promised to come. That God really does have a plan here in all of creation. That this wasn't just willy-nilly, Jesus shows up on the scene and he made a plan to rescue all of humanity. From what, you might say, right? No, if you were to ask a Hebrew at this time who they were waiting for, what they were waiting for, they were waiting for what they would call the Messiah. 
Now, we throw a lot, that word around quite a bit in our society uh, while divorcing it from its original context, right? We say, this next politician is going to be our Messiah, right? Audible groan insert there, right? Or maybe it's Neo from the Matrix. Can't wait for that sequel to come out, by the way. It's great. It's going to be awesome. Maybe he's the, the, the Messiah in that world, right? The next head football coach is going to be our Messiah and save the program. Or Lord help us, Tim Tebow is going to be our Messiah. No. So today, Messiah just simply means leader or savior of a particular group. But to the Jewish people, it meant so much more. We're going to walk through the history and the story of God's people today. And as we walk through the text and as we look at Mary's story and Elizabeth's story and then the history of the Old Testament... We, I want us to consider some questions along the day. If you're here and you're a doubter of Jesus, or maybe you're seeking, you're like, man, I, I want to believe this Jesus guy. Consider these questions. Who or what is the Messiah? Why do we need one? Could it be Jesus? And ultimately, why does it all matter? But let's start our journey where the text actually leads us um, with Mary at the beginning of this story, right? So last week we saw Mary, uh, an angel appears to her and tells her that she's going to have a baby, right? Good news. But also, second part of good news, um, it's not going to be her betrothed husband Joseph's baby. It's going to be God's baby. It's going to be the God-man born through her, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and Mary, as an example for us in faith, says, I'm your servant. You, I, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm ready to engage. I want to be the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me, according to your word. And the angel departs from her. But Mary, she's a go-getter. The first thing she does, it says the next verse in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose right after this and went with haste to the hill country, the town in Judah. So the first thing she does after finding out she's pregnant is go on a hike. Like, you want to be faithful and obedient like Mary? Hike, go on a hike to the glory of God. Like, go to the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and hike to the glory of God. This was an 81-mile journey as the crow flies. So you can imagine how long this would have been along the treacherous little country back roads she had to do hiking up this mountain, right? Now, in all seriousness, she probably didn't walk this entire way, Right? She was probably part of a, a traveling caravan or something like that. But what we are told explicitly in this text is that she went with haste. So we know one thing, she's got a good mile time. Like she, she's, she, she made really good time. So Mary shows up. And the first thing that happens is Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She's filled the Holy Spirit. And what she does is she celebrates with her friend. I mean, do you, you guys have this friend? Like anytime you give them any good news at all, they're like immediately, like their voice goes through the roof. My mom's here. She's exactly like this. It's this, whoo, like that happens immediately after something exciting happens. She can't help it. It just flows right out of her. This is what Elizabeth does. It says in the text, she exclaimed with a loud cry. And even John, baby John, is dancing in his mom's belly here. See, this is a side note. One of the reasons that we are pro-life as followers of Jesus as Christians because we believe that there's a person in there. There's an actual person in there, and John, the person, is reacting in his mama's womb to the presence of his Savior. Like, John's recognizing it through the power of the Holy Spirit and doing little backflips in there. Inside note, 
See, Elizabeth recognizes Mary's faith. Let's look at verse 45 together. Verse 45. Elizabeth says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She's a good friend here who recognizes that Mary's been walking in obedience. And then also, I don't know if you missed this, but in verses 43 and 45, she claims that Jesus is her Lord. Let's look at verses 42 through 43. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She actually believes God is in there. She actually believes Mary is pregnant with her Messiah. The one who's going to bring all of the promises of God. The one who's going to fulfill, bring blessing and rest from the curse. How breathtaking is this? How absolutely amazing is this? How is she able to believe this? How is she even able to know all this? Mary just showed up. She just walked in the door. How is she able to speak these holy truths? Church, the Spirit of God had filled Elizabeth. And this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit causes uncontainable joy and truth to pour out of those who recognize Jesus as Lord. This is a natural response to the presence of her Savior. You can't help this type of response when you believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, let's get real here for a second and kind of fast forward to today. Here we are in the church. What do we do with a text like this? I think it's easy for us to think of these people these biblical figures as robots kind of performing a function in the story like a classic storybook trope, right? We just see them as those little figurines on the Advent set that we set out outside of the, you know, the little stable and the Mary and the Joseph or whatever. It's easy for us to think of them like storybook characters, the tropes of the faithful sidekick, the misunderstood hero, the power-hungry leader. This is just like your really fun, energetic friend, you know? That's not Elizabeth. She's a real person. She is Mary's spirit-filled cousin. And Elizabeth is also a good friend. Church, do you have good friends like this? I know I'd be a mess without a few of these people in my life. You know the friends who, when you have something exciting to share, those are the ones you want to go to because you know they're going to celebrate with you on that thing? You might have some other friends where you might not, maybe not going to share that with them first. Maybe they're on the line. You're going to tell them, right? But the people you want to tell first are the ones who are going to express joy with you, excitement with you, the people who are for you, they're on your team. These are also the type of friends that you, you, you don't really care how dumb you look around them, right? Like you got inside jokes that other people just aren't going to get, right? You're, there's some folks around those friends that just don't land around normies, right? They don't land. There's jokes between me and my wife Kylie in reference to the movie The Grinch with Jim Carrey. Y'all just ain't gonna get, and and that's okay, you know. Holiday Hubiwadi, you know, like, and she's there for it, like, ninety-nine percent of the time. She's down for those jokes. She gets them, but around normal people, it just doesn't work. See, the my, the main point here is we need friends like Elizabeth that can truly celebrate with us, that really know us, and point us to Jesus, because this is the whole point of it. Elizabeth is pointing Mary back to God, her own Lord, that is residing in her womb reminding of God's power, of her obedience to God, and what a joy it is to actually meet her Savior. 
So if you're here, it doesn't matter if you're married, single, have roommates, whatever, you need people who can celebrate with you and speak truth to you. This is one of the reasons that we have community groups here at Veritas. Community groups are groups of men and women that gather together in small groups to be able to, to, to read the word together, to pray together. But more than that, be friends with one, alongside of one another, to actually hang out, to actually care for one another, meet each other's needs, and point one another to Jesus. See, Elizabeth was a good friend that believed the scriptures, that a Messiah was going to come and fulfill the promises of God to his people, that he was going to exalt the humble in their faithfulness and humiliate the prideful in their sin. This is where we're going to look at the story of the entire Bible. See, the Bible begins with all things good, right? All things right as they should be. God dwelling and ruling with man in a beautiful garden of flourishing and plenty. But that doesn't last long, right? Snake shows up, convinces Adam and Eve to doubt God and sin. Now, this snake is a problem because, one, it's very mysterious. First, he can talk. That's weird. We kind of skip over that detail half the time. It's weird. Two, He's trying to trick Eve into disobeying God, and we even get to watch it happen, and we're told that Adam's there the whole time. That's just, a little, come on, Adam. You got one job, man. You had one job. And this snake is the embodiment of evil and rebellion against God. See, we're even told later in the scriptures, this is Satan, come to deceive the liar from the very beginning. But man fall. Adam and Eve fall, and there God exiles them from the garden, but not before making a promise when pronouncing judgment on that cosmic deceiver, the snake. Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or seed there and her offspring, he shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise or strike or crush his heel. See, through this story of Adam and Eve, we are told of a coming man who would crush the head of the snake. Crush the head of the snake, but not without being fatally bitten. Through this, we are led to believe that this man would reverse the curse of separation with us and God. If you're here this morning and you have these inner longings that cannot be satisfied, you've tried things, you've There's things about the world that are broken and wrong, and you you think, this ought not be this way. There's there's supposed to be different than this. Why is life this hard? Why is this thing a reality in my life? Those things are a result of the fall because of sin and because of this decision of Adam and Eve to disobey and distrust God. This is where this comes from. But God would have plans to rescue us. Through this verse, we've seen, as we've seen, uh, as we've preached through Genesis this fall, God chooses one family through uh, all the earth with whom this promise is going to come. And that family starts with Abraham. We follow this along to the end of Genesis. And by the end of Genesis, we meet another character. And in this person, it says that the line's going to continue. A king's going to come from this line. And this guy's name is Judah. Although we, most of what we know about Judah in the story is that he's a total trash bag. Like, we're told in Genesis 49 that it's through his line, this line of Judah, that a king's going to come and that his rule would bring blessing. 
the blessing like we had in the garden, the unity with God like we had in the beginning. We continue that line, and the first king of the line of Judah is someone most of us have heard of before, King David. King David, he starts off looking pretty great. He's anointed as king by a priest. He brings blessing to all that's around him. He defends the weak and the innocent, and he brings and cuts off the heads of snake-like warrior kings. But he, along with the rest of them, proves that he is only a man. He ends up failing and showing that he wasn't the true king either. David is followed by a long line of horrible kings who lead the people astray and run the empire into the ground. But God would not give up on his people. He would send them prophets. In the aftermath and the ruin of their kingdom, God sends the voices of these guys called prophets to remind God's people of the promise and call them to repent, to believe in the beginning of promise. God really is going to hold to his plan. He is going to rescue. He is going to redeem. He is going to bring all things new. And then we land in Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the more wordy prophets. A little bit longer book in the Old Testament, right? He tells us most explicitly who this king would be and what would happen after he crushes the snake and the snake fatally fatally strikes his heel. After painting that picture for over 50 chapters of this servant king of God who would come and be model faithful obedience for us and preach good news, we are told this in Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, like God promised, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. It would be through his sacrifice that we would be brought back to God, just like God promised. He would crush the head of the serpent. But we are told that this servant king would die. Somehow, we read this in verse 10 following it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yes, he died. He has put him to grief when his soul made an offering for guilt. Don't miss the turn here. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Somehow, this servant king who suffers and walks perfectly, suffers obediently, takes his sins upon himself, crushes the snake of death. He lives again. This is the king that Elizabeth rejoiced to meet. This king didn't come to meet Elizabeth on a powerful war horse with a sword in his hand and a crown of, 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 of jewels on his head. This king shows up in the womb of her unwed teenage cousin. And Elizabeth can't contain her joy. She can't help it. She's overflowing with joy and truth, just pouring out of her. She's excited for Mary because she has met her king, her unborn king. After we are told of Elizabeth's joyful response at recognizing Jesus as Lord, then we get the words of Mary's song. And here's where we'll spend the rest of our time together in the in the remaining verses 46 through 56. I want to read a quote from Philip Ryken, um, a scholar, pastor, uh, who had some really helpful remarks as I was reading his commentary this week. Come up on the screen for us. He said, This song marks the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. Luke, the good doctor, 
because he was a doctor, knew that his gospel must be a musical for what God has done in Christ demands to be praised. Church, I don't know if you know this, the the reason why we spend our time gathered together like this as a church in song and hearing the word of God preached is because the gospel and what God has done through Jesus demands to be praised. We are shaped, we are formed into the image of Jesus as we rightly praise him for what he has done. If those are just words on a screen that we're mouthing or watching other people sing or just kind of singing along ourselves, if those aren't words that we can't mean in the core of our being, like Elizabeth, like Mary, we are missing out on what God has for us. A thing that he means to shape us by. A thing that we are to be formed by. This is why we try to sing theologically rich and emotionally engaging songs. Songs like Mary. Let's look at Mary's song here. I think it's striking that such amazing words would flow out of this young Hebrew girl. Remember, she's a teenager, right? Between 13 and 16. I don't know if Mary were, you know, if this was the day and age right now, how you get her eyes off of TikTok or not trying to make some like terrible 90s clothing decision, like trying to bring that back in style. That's all the teens are excited about nowadays. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. Leave chokers in the 90s, you know, They're done. We're done. I think we need to remember, though, it was her song. This isn't Luke putting words in her mouth. The Spirit of God who made her conceive Jesus inspired these words and knew that her song were going to be Holy Scripture. Mary knew her Bible. Mary had read the Scripture. She studied. This song alone, there are quotes and allusions to at least 10 Old Testament books in this song alone. And we're not going to spend like the next hour going through all that stuff. I wish we did. It'd be great. I'd love to nerd out with you guys on that stuff. Um, But here's a little helpful breakdown for this text that I think will be helpful to understand it over the next few minutes. Um, This is something I put together. It's just servant, her savior, and our salvation. A way to kind of understand Mary's song in three parts. The servant, her herself there. Then she focuses the, 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 the attention on her savior. And finally, she tells us about our salvation. See, Mary's song isn't specifically about what she's doing or all the weight that she's having to carry with, you know, bearing God and all, but it's about God himself. She can't help but sing about what God has done and will do. So this song centers around this central, unavoidable theme. God humbles the proud and God lifts up the humble. Let's refresh ourselves and our memory with verses 46 through 48. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, for now all generations will call me blessed. See, Mary starts off her song in praise. She magnifies the Lord, God her Savior. And you'll notice that's the same word that Elizabeth uses earlier, that phrase, the Lord there. Also, we had um, Miss Lauren Glatz read Um, Hannah's song out of 1 Samuel. She starts off her song eerily in the same way. Mary knew of Hannah's song, and it all fits together. The the whole Bible is one unified story that points to and leads to Jesus. Gosh, I just love the Bible. It's absolutely amazing. Go read Hannah's song and Mary's song side by side. It's the best. Go do that at home. It'll be amazing. So why does she praise God, though? She tells us. 
because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, namely her. It's what God has done for her. And from now on, all generations are going to call her blessed. See, she calls herself a servant here, a servant of God. And so she is carrying God the Son within her own womb. But she doesn't focus on all the work that she's doing. She quickly focuses on the character of God. Let's look at verses 49 and 50. They read like this. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You may have noticed the is is in there. He is mighty. Holy is his name. Mercy is for those who fear him. These are statements about the character of God, that God is mighty. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful, that God is holy. He's completely other than. He's completely separate from sin. There's nothing dark in him. There's no evil that resides with him or around him. God is holy, and God is merciful. This is an aspect of his character that as we approach God, we can be sure of these things. He shows seemingly unending mercy, generation to generation of those who fear him. And now here's the turning point in Mary's song. This great reversal about what salvation that this Savior will bring will look like. God humbling the proud and lifting up the humble. See, so much in our society, we are told, if we are to get ahead, if we're going to be winners, if we're going to be said, if it's going to be said of you, well done, my faithful servant, it's implicitly said in all of our society, you got to get it done. You got to pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. You better get the job done or there will be consequences. Not so with this Savior. Let's look at what Mary has to say about our salvation. She says this, verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. See, we can see uh, this is poetic language here. Mary put a lot of thought into this thing. Yes, it was spontaneous, but man, was it just magnificent. What we see here, if, I'm going to get nerdy and in the weeds for a second, so hang with me, I promise it's good. We get one line on, what, on God's work. We get two lines on what God does with the proud. We get two more lines after that about what God does for the humble. And we get one last line about, about Mary equating the proud with the rich. And then finally, we get four closing definitive lines about the connection between um, all of Israel and God's promises, that he's going to fulfill them, that they are the humble he's going to bless. Let's look at that in a little bit more detail. In that first verse of verse 51, he says, he has shown strength with his arm. This is God saying, I'm in control. I'm all powerful. This is my arm. This is the thing I'm going to do to get things done. It's my work throughout the story of the whole Bible. The next line, this is about what God does with the proud. He scatters them. He also brings down the mighty from their thrones. Think about the history of God's people in Israel. I want you to think about the conquest of Canaan, the story about God's enemies being scattered in the breaking ranks and becoming completely exposed. 
In that time, if you couldn't keep all of your troops together, you were going to die. You were going to be all defeated. It was done, you were done for if you couldn't keep all your troops together. And so also think about the rogue kings that God just took out. Think about Hezekiah. He brings them down and rips the crown off his head. He throws him down. He thinks he's a beast. These are all the terrible kings of, of Israel, all the wicked kings that the Israelites then also expelled from God's promised land. Then those, that's what God does with the proud. Then we see two lines about what God does for the humble. He exalts them. He fills the, the hungry with good things. The last line that we have about the rich is that he sends them away empty. But the definitive lines at the end of this focus on God's promises to his people. He's going to stand by what he said. He's going to bring it to completion. See, like everything in the scriptures for us, there's two sides to the scriptures that must convict us and also remind us of the grace and mercy only found in Jesus and what God has done for us. That God really does have a standard. We don't, we, we don't measure up to it. God really does demand really weighty, hard things of us. But then we remember the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. See, in a time like this, how can we be seen as anything other than counted among the rich, counted among the prideful? How many of us can honestly say, I'm the humble one in the room? Actually calling yourself out on, as the humble one, you know, doesn't really work out that good. Not a good game plan. See, are we the humble, poor, or the proud rich? See, we should be reminded of James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, half the time, y'all, me, as your pastor, <laughs> I get it wrong. I blow it. I am counted, I count myself among the proud. I count myself among the rich. I can't remember the last time I was legitimately hungry because I didn't have something to eat. There were leftovers every week. I got an Amazon wish list of stuff that I'm just like waiting to buy, right? See, living in a, a land of blessing and abundance, we run the risk of being satisfied with lesser things and not truly being satisfied in Jesus. See, we run the risk of being satisfied with these lesser things and being sent away by God in our richness, empty. Why do you think so many of our prayer lives just feel fruitless? Why do I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels sometimes in my own pride and my own arrogance? Maybe you're here and you feel like you've tried everything there is to try and it doesn't feel you. You've had everything this world can offer, but you still walk around feeling empty. See, what this passage is inviting us to really believe is until you hunger and thirst for what only Jesus can supply you, you will always be empty and unsatisfied. Until you realize that you can only come to Jesus with empty hands. Empty hands, clinging to nothing. You don't get to keep something on you as you come to Jesus. You come empty with nothing. Until you do that, you will feel the longing for true satisfaction that's only met in Jesus. That hole in you is going to feel like it's still there. And friends, although that is true, this is the good news for us this morning. 
God really is in control. Jesus, in the fullness of time, came and was conceived and born by the Virgin Mary. Jesus, God incarnate, unlike the kings of old and the armies of old, was not scared when he came to us in fragility. He willingly allowed himself to become fragile and vulnerable for our sake. He was not removed from his throne because of his arrogance. He willingly stepped down into history to take our shame upon himself. Through his life and his death, he takes the lowest in the world and he exalts him. It is said of us that we sit with Christ in the heavenlies even now. Do we deserve this? No. Far from it. Jesus, in his life, he fed the hungry, he heals the sick, he met needs, he cast out demons, and he still does so today through the hands of his people, by the power of his spirit. We are those hands and feet. He also rebukes those who would say that they are righteous and without need of him. He sends the rich, he sends the proud away empty. And finally, when Jesus walked out of that grave on the third day, conquering sin and death, it was all according to plan. None who would be left behind, none whom his, his promises to his own would be left undone. He fulfills them all. So what this does, church, means we can be free of our pride. We really can be free of our pride. We can be a people open, willing with one another to say, here is, here is my brokenness on display before you. Here is my hurtful words that I sometimes say. Please forgive me of it. Here is my pride. Here is my arrogance. Here is my greed. Because those things don't define us anymore. Jesus does. He's taken all of that from us. Those, when, when, when we want to get real about talking our own pride or our worship of rightness or the times that we treat God or our sin flippantly, man, we, can, we, can, we can own those things before our brothers and our sisters. See, sometimes I don't want to read my Bible. Sometimes I lose it with my kids. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't. Thank God it is not my goodness keeping me on the team. It is only Christ's righteousness in my own place. Jesus' salvation has made a way for me to be brought into the family. He is my conquering king who has conquered me. And he conquers my sins still. So when we blow it, we do it often. We need other people in our life. Church, do you have an Elizabeth? that can rejoice with you and also call you to obedience, to point you to Jesus. See, it's in those moments where all I can see is my sin ever before me. I need other men in my life who can encourage me, who can point me to Jesus, tell me again of the gospel truth as it bubbles up out of them and remind me that gospel that they're speaking is for me too. See, if you're here today and you're hungry for that uncontainable joy that can only be found in Jesus. You want to lay hold of the truth of the entire universe. There's only one way to have it. Recognize Jesus as Lord. We're about to go into a time of response. And I want to invite you to ask the Spirit of God to give you eyes to see. Ask Him. He's going he's to meet you in your need there. You know why? God. He takes the proud and He lays them low. And He takes those 
who in their humility recognize their need, he exalts them. Are you ready to be exalted? Do you, do you want Jesus to meet you in your need, to fill you with good things? Or do you want to leave out of here feeling hungry and dissatisfied again? I know where my own heart lies today. I want to be met with the fullness that can only be found in Jesus. Church, let's pray. God, I pray that these things uh, that we've seen in this text today would be true about us as a people, um, that we would see what Mary has called us to do and see in your salvation, God, and remember that you are for us and not against us. You've made a way for us to be brought into the family of God, part of this grand story of all of creation. You even invite us to be your very hands and feet to meet the needs around us. God, may we in humility this morning ask you again for the grace that you never cease to give, for the mercy that you long to show to us. God, may your faithfulness be felt among this people this morning, that we would remember that we are a part of the generations and generations and generations, blessing your name because of the word that you gave your servant Mary. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.